0: And our final verse of the last chapter, and you, it says that Elisha, Elishama, Elisha. We can actually just call him that now because he's the only guy that's of that name or like it. Here, he went from Mount Carmel and he returned to Samaria. It's important to note. Now, you guys have maps. Can you look and see on your map? See if you can find Samaria on your map. Today, Samaria is called Samaria, um, but you can get there, but you need a bulletproof bus. I'll give me an idea. It costs a little bit more. Do you see where Samaria is? Now, on your map, can you see where the Dead Sea is? Well, let's do it this way. Can you see from, from Samaria, can you find Jerusalem? That's between 38 and 42 miles. Now, you can, obviously, if you can find Jerusalem, you can find the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, the Jerusalem is roughly six miles. Can you find the bottom of the Dead Sea? That wasn't very difficult. Okay. Well, the bottom of the Dead Sea now puts us at another roughly 35 miles. That's how long the Dead Sea is for what it's worth. So you're looking at roughly 80 miles between Samaria and the bottom of the Red Sea, a Dead Sea. I'm sorry. Do you see that? No. Can you see what sits at the east end of the bottom of the Dead Sea? Who's land does that belong to during this particular period of time? Can you tell me? Edom. Can you see that? So southeast of the Dead Sea is Edom. And then if you head north again, we're going around the east side of the Dead Sea, you will find Moab. Do you see that? Moab you're probably familiar with is the actually uh, the, tribe, if, or, me, the tribe, it's the peoples from whom Ruth originally came, who is the great-great-great-grandmother of David. But anyways, they are at this point way, way huge on worshiping their particular god. His name is Hamesh, for what it's worth. Uh, he's a really nasty person and you sacrifice your firstborn to him. It's a really, really bad deal. So, for what it's worth. The Edomites, on the other hand, they have their share of problems too. Now, again, I'm just kind of putting us, getting us ready for our text because I want us to be able to get the most out of it we possibly can. The the Edomites have their God. They call him Kos. Q-O-S is probably the best way you would say it. Kos. And he's, in essence, sort of the uh, Yahweh replacement is kind of the idea. Now, we are roughly, to give you a timestamp, Elisha starts Elishama starts his uh, his ministry at roughly the 850s BC, and he's just kind of roughly started. So we're really at about 850 BC right now, to kind of give you an idea where we're at, time-stamp-wise. And this is what we read in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahav, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years. He's our key player to start with. Now, we're very familiar with Ahab. Ahab was the most wicked king. He was the seventh king of the northern empire. And he married this little cookie named Jezebel, Yitzabel. And she was horrible. She had brought in Baal worship into the north. She was the uh, princess of a guy whose name is Eth Baal. He was the high priest of Baal in the area of Sidon. Today, Sidon is called Sidon. You got that? Uh, it's there in, in the area, right by Lebanon. And uh, he, the Esbaal, Jezebel's dad, murdered the king of Sidon so that he could become the king of Sidon. So he is now the reigning king of Sidon. And his daughter, in a political arrangement, we can assume, gets in a marriage with the guy from that's just in border. In other words, the, the kingdom just south of him, which happens to be the land of Israel. So. That guy gives his son to marry that guy 's the Ethbaal's daughter Jezebel, and that 's Ahab and Jezebel. They have a couple kids one guy 's name is Ahatiya. you might be familiar with him. He was the first guy leaning on a lattice, leaning on something too flimsy to hold him up. He falls through and ultimately will never recover. And he seeks to inquire of a guy named Baal Baalzebub, Lord of the Flies. Now, I don't know about you, but my first thought is, if I'm going to die, the last god I want to look for is the one that's in charge of flies. Nonetheless, and there, are, there are reasons, but part of it is, that just tells you the condition of his household, for what it's worth. And when he dies, because he doesn't recover from it, well, he has no son. So, at that point, we have to go to the next... If you will, his younger brother. And that's who this guy is. He happens to be the son of Ahab, the, the second son of Achav. The There's our idea. He becomes king over Samaria. The south, on the other hand, the, the area that's called Judah, is reigned by a guy named Yehoshaphat. Yehoshaphat, by the way, means God is judge. And he is actually a really decent God calls him a really decent guy. However, he has a couple terrible problems. One is he is completely indiscriminate in what friends he picks. And the other thing is, is that he's kind of the guy that kind of leaps first and then prays later, that's this guy. And we're going to find he's going to do that again here. It's the third guy he's done that with, because he's done it with Ahav, then he did with his first son, in regards to trying to put together a military navy, and now he's done it with this guy. And his language here is going to be very similar to his dad's. But I remind you that in a case like this, it gets even weirder, because that king, Ahav, and his wife have a daughter. And that daughter marries the son Of the southern tribe, just the kingdom south of them, which is Judah. So now what you have is Sidon, through marriage, has a political allegiance with their area, which is Israel. Israel has a political allegiance with Judah through marriage as well. Now, please hear me in this. There is a lesson to learn before we dive into this. And it's not even the key lesson of this. And the lesson is, God does not want unity at the expense of truth. God does not want us to forfeit his truth just to say that we're unified with someone. It would be the same way as the human body saying, you know, well, let's just face it. Let's just, I mean, you know, we've got a problem with AIDS and we've got a problem with cancer, but can't we all just get along? Well, AIDS has a purpose and cancer has a purpose and none of it's beneficial to the human body. And God makes really clear that we are to engage the world, to impact it, not to imitate it. And when we start connecting and drawing and connecting hands at the expense of who Jesus Christ is, we are doing it for our own failure and our own misery. And we're doing it, and we're going to learn it here, it really does make things really bad. So, Ehab's son, Yehoram, now has become king. He gets to Jehoshaphat. Yehoshaphat's actually at this point 47, and he's actually going to see Yehoshaphat seven years into his reign, and then Jehoshaphat will hand it over to his son. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Yeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. He didn't, he didn't depart from them. Now, this is all our setting for the whole story that's going to start in verse 4. Now, what we do learn, by the way, and please hear me in this, is that Israel was challenged To not only leave the gods of Egypt when they left Egypt, but they were also challenged not to embrace the gods of Canaan when they were to go there. God pulled them out of Egypt, and then he spent 40 years, if you will, pulling Egypt out of them. The problem is, how do you pull out of someone the trappings of the place they've yet to go to? Now... For what it's worth, those of you who are kind of Bible students, when you look at the book of Leviticus and you see all of these laws and you go, oh, there's all this sacrifice and don't eat this. And I mean, uh, I'll just be honest. There are certain things that God says that I'm like, so let me see if this is right. You should not put obstacles that are going to trip a blind person in front of them. If a, if a mouse dies in your pot, don't gift the pot to your neighbor. Uh, why does, I mean, the fact that he has to tell us these things tells you how messed up we are as a human race. Let's just be honest. And let's face it, when we read things in the book of Leviticus, for instance, there are all these particular laws, I just remember praying, Lord, help me to get the heart behind this. And he gave me the acronym HOLY, and it's a totally side note, but it's important for us getting ready for this. And and this is at least my personal journey, it doesn't have to be yours. But the H stood for health, the O stood for obedience, the L stood for leaving the world you came from, and the Y stood for yearning for God in the new world he puts you in. And and I've learned that as I look at this, there are things I learn, and it's like, God's like, you know what, all of those like shellfish things back in those days, people pooped in their rivers, and then those shellfish ate that for dinner, and then you ate them for dinner. God's like, that's not a good idea. You know, we didn't cook, our everything was served a little bit like tartar, you know, like kind of raw. And so he's like, you know, pork, yeah, not a good idea. And I mean, people's arms and legs would swell up like gas balloons just from what happens. now. We love pig disease because we shoot it into our face to make us look. In I don't do it, by the way. This is all natural. Now, the whole point of it is, is that there are times where God's going to say something. and He's like, look, it, this is for health and you don't even know how healthy this is for you. But it's also that you can trust him. I don't know why you're telling me to do this, but I'm going to trust you. But also, I want you to leave the world I pulled you out of. And when I reinsert you in ministry, I don't want you to start acting like the world that I'm putting you into. I want you to influence. I don't want you to impact it. And so I get that because when I look at the New Testament and I see these things, a lot of these things are going to go head on in collision with the culture we live in. And he's like, I don't want you acting like that. I don't want the scripture to be so offensive to you because you're so steeped in that culture that you're like, well, the, God, the Bible has to change because I'm not really interested in it, not jiving with the world out there. Imagine it's like, I don't want to offend the drowning guy by pulling him out of the water. You know, I mean, let's just face it. It would be better just to act like him. Let's just let me waterboard myself while this guy is, while this guy is drowning. And you think, that's complete lunacy. But we do that in the world. Here's the crazy part. According to Ephesians 1.13, the moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ, he put his Holy Spirit inside of you. And that Holy Spirit, he starts making you look like Jesus More and more each day, he starts setting you apart from the world. So if you're trying to look more like the world, you are fighting the Holy Spirit God put inside of you. Good luck on that battle. Now, in our situation, here it is. This guy didn't do what he did do. He was still a yutz. He was still a jerk. He was still a sinner. He was still a rebellious guy. But notice it says he didn't do this, but he did do this. What he didn't do was embrace the new gods that his mom and dad brought in. That was the Baal problem. But he did embrace the gods that they came from. This whole Apis god that was god of agriculture and fertility and protection and deliverance that the, the Egyptians worship, which was a big cow. Because I look at a cow and my first thought is clearly deliverance is in that thing. Now maybe for hunger, I don't mean to be rude to a vegetarian, but for the most part I don't look at a cow and think, there is my safety. Now, just the same, this golden calf that has been placed in Bethel and up in Tel Dan, it just comes right out of Egypt. In other words, please hear me on this: this is an old god that they try to drag with them, and we'll all do that. We try to embrace Christ as Lord, but there are areas we don't let Him into, like it's Beauty and the Beast. He's the beauty, and we're telling Him stay out of the wing. And I realize in all of this, there are areas God's like, look at, I want to touch every area of your life, your identity, your sexuality, the way you view the world, the way you prioritize, you know, the way that, and that's, I realize everything that God, there's no area for it to be untouched by God. And the reason I say that is, is that ultimately what we find ourselves doing is dragging old gods over things that we used to worship and lean on and go for to guidance and for strength that are in essence in competition with God. And this particular guy, though he didn't embrace the new stuff, he really never let go of the old. Well, that's where this guy is at. That's the king of Israel. Now, let's get into our story. Misha. Misha, by the way, ironically means safety, which is very ironic for this story. He was a sheep herder. He was the king of Moab. He was a sheep herder. And he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and uh, and the wool of 100,000 rams. Clearly, he's a good sheep herder because that's an awful lot of lambs to give up every year. But it happened when Ahav died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Yehoram went out of Samaria at that time and he mustered all Israel. Here's our situation. Misha had been conquered by a guy named Omri. He was the first king, if you will. Uh, he was, in essence, he was the sixth king of the Northern Empire. But when he conquered him, because he was a pretty strong and tough tough character, they put him under taxation, subject, subjugation. In those days, you didn't just pay tax. You could pay other things. In this case, he paid with sheep. That's clear, according to this. Amri's son is Ahav. So Ahav continued into the situation. Misha continued to pay. However, when... When Ahav died, his son, and I remind you the first one was that Ahaziah character. When he took over, Misha saw the golden opportunity and he's like, we're done with this. It's important to note there are two things that seem to make a kingdom vulnerable. One is the change of hands. Because I remind you, a king also is the leader of your army. He's also your chief lawmaker. He's also the person that if the people don't agree with, he's not going to be able to assemble that army that he promises. So the best time to attack such a kingdom would be at the change of hands, the death of a king. I mean, the guy's mourning, he's already having trouble, and he's, I mean, he's like, this is his first day on the job and he has to go lead a battle. It is the time where opposing armies recognize this is a good time to strike. So when Achav dies and his son takes over, Misha bails on him, and to be honest, Ahaziah is in no... Remember, he falls through the lattice. He's in no condition to lead an army to go and try to get Misha back, which means he just lost 100,000 lambs and that means no fleece jackets for anyone. Now, his son, remember, his younger brother is this guy, and he takes over, and he's going to prove to his kingdom that he's a tougher guy than his big brother, and he's going to go get this, this land back. That's what he's going to do. So he looks at this. Now, for <clears throat> what it's worth, if you're kind of an, uh, an archaeological person, there was a thing called the Misha steel, now S-T-E-E-L-E. And what that is, is it's a carving or a writing, usually on metal or on pottery, that is, sort of records history. Well, there is a thing called the Misha steel. In other words, they discovered something, I believe it was 1868, and they discovered the steel written from the perspective of Misha, this particular character in scripture. And of course, it's a whole lot more complementary. Timesia than we might get here. But it, most of it tells the story of how he basically was able to get victory over this guy's big brother was the idea. It's also called the Moabite stone for what it's worth. And what surprises me, to be honest, is that it's not in the um, British Museum. Because I think everything else from this is sort of taken there. Anyways, Now, verse 6, Yehorem went out, to Samaria, out of Samaria at that time and he mustered all Israel. He's going to get that kingdom back. Oh, by the way, I did have to say there were two things. The other thing, by the way, is if you can't keep your laws, if you have to bail on a law, the kingdom clearly starts to fall apart. Remember the story of Esther? That becomes one of the primary issues of the story of Esther. The king, duped by his, his right hand man Haman, he says, "Oh yeah, let's do that. Let's sign this thing in order." And then he looks at, at Esther, even though it knows that he's basically signed her death warrant at this point. He goes, "You know, I can't go back on the law I've made." Because if they do, what that means is that the king is weak and he's fickle-minded. Does that make sense? The law cannot be broken or the kingdom is weak. Now, follow me on this for just a quick second. This is why Jesus says, not one yad or tittle will be broken. There's not one part of the law that will ever be broken, but rather fulfilled as been promised. Jesus knows you can't just bail on a law or break a law and actually assume that in somehow that's going to be okay. Here is our problem. How do you have the law which is merciless and a God who, or a king who loves in the same household? There is no other... You're aware of this, right? There is no other religion out there, no other mindset, no other idealism other than this Bible that tells us about a God who actually is able to be completely loving, completely merciful and gracious, and yet never break any of his laws. Because the laws allowed the provision of a totally innocent person volunteering to step in your stead to pay your price. God, knowing the only person would be him, steps and clothes himself in flesh and takes the beating himself for you. That is the story of the cross. And therefore, no law was broken. God just didn't just go, oh, we'll just forget about that. God covered it in the blood of his sacrifice. There's the beauty in that. Now, in this situation, it's important to note, by the way, when the end comes according to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to the Father. And by the way, it's interesting because that doesn't come without a battle. Now, Jehoram wants to go and take the land back. He kind of knows he's a bit outnumbered at this point. At this point, Moab's now become fortified. They're a pretty tough army, and he realizes he shouldn't do it alone. So, verse 7, He went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Now, if you were Jehoshaphat, and you were a godly king, and we all see that he is, there is a really good thing you could have learned from this, and it's like, let me go pray about it. Let me go seek the Lord. I mean, this guy's dad, he goes, when he was with him, he's like, do you have any real prophet here of the Lord? And he goes, there's that one guy, but I hate him because he only speaks bad about me. Is there any place in your head that a red flag means anything? You know, you ever meet somebody and, you know, you're single at a moment like this and you meet somebody and like, yeah, they're cute, but there's this. Yeah, that's a little warning, but they're cute. Oh, but then there's this. Hmm. Yeah, but they're cute. But wait a minute. Oh, look at how they treat their dog. Look at how they treat their sister. Look at how they treat whatever. And you kind of start to see these things, and you're like, and everything inside of you goes, you know, if you close your eyes for a moment and just looked at the facts, this doesn't look good on paper. Like this plus this plus this plus this equals run. That's what it means. But you're like, no, it's it's, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then you're like, no, it's not Okay. Somewhere down the line, you can relate to Jehoshaphat then, because Jehoshaphat. Now, here's—I remind you, by the way—he's looking at a guy who's the brother of his daughter-in-law. Just kind of like remember his this guy, this king's sister, married Jehoshaphat's son. So he's kind of like, oh yeah. So look what he says. Oh, I'll go up. I am as you are, my people are as your people, my horses are your, your horses. First Kings 22, you know what he said to his dad? I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And he didn't learn from that one. And what Jehoshaphat has is a real terrible problem picking his friends. Do you realize how important this is? God says, don't be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Evil company corrupts good habits. Proverbs 12.26 says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. You realize, you don't have to be everyone's friend. I'm not on Facebook, literally have never been on Facebook. So when I heard you can friend or unfriend someone, and then I have a, you know, at that time I had an 11 year old, now she's 14, that would be like, you know, I have like 3,000 followers. I'm like, what are you leading a cult? How do you have followers? Have they ever met you? No, none of no, ever met you. You have followers who have never met you. I don't even want to know what this is about. But I remember telling both of my girls when they were younger, every person you meet becomes an acquaintance. You're familiar enough with them to be acquainted with their face, but they graduate to friends because a friend has the privilege of influence. And you should be careful because any person who has the power of influence in your life, there should be a part of you that says, I'm cool with being more like that person. Because otherwise, why would you want to be influenced by him? What part, what does Yehoram have to offer Yehoshaphat? What part of Yehoram could he look at and go, well, you don't worship Baal, that's cool. I mean, but you still worship the cow. Think about the people you call your friends. If you were to just pick the top three, is there something about them that you go, I really want to be like this? If I could pick a trait, if I could handpick my emotional DNA, this is what I would pick from each of them. Is it something that actually fits under the umbrella of godliness? Look at me. has got a real problem. And the sad part is, he's just not learning from it. When When I played basketball... I was, I'm old enough, I know this is going to amaze you, but I'm old enough to have studied Michael Jordan. Not in any way that I emulated him, but I realized at that time it wasn't just his moves or his ability to, sh- to pop a three or whatever. In the end of it all, his ability to work as a team and to function and to see people rise up and to really ignite and unite a team. There were some things about him that he never gets the credit that, he, that at least that I would watch. But I remember those things and trying to incorporate them. And when I became a basketball coach, I started thinking, going, what really functioned well there? Because it was such a great example of a very successful basketball player in its time. But in regards to living life, who's your life coach? Who is it you want to be more like? Now, in this room, you're going to say Jesus, because that's the script. But in reality, who is it? Because if we're going to be honest, there are a whole lot of other people we will let steer us into. Terrible choices. Let me say it this way. If you're with the right friends to become more godly, all you really have to do is nothing. It'll happen. But if you're with the wrong friends to get worse, all you have to do is nothing. You'll happen. You'll absorb it. So you want to spend the rest of your life having to do everything to not absorb your friends? Or do you want to really be... Any... Now, I tell people, you know, and my daughter says, well, look it, if they're not your friends, they're your ministry. If they are your friends, they're your ministry too but you can get, draw encouragement from them. Now, we're in our conversation in the Jehoshaphat. No, there's an enemy. I remind you, the king of the north, that's Israel, has now contacted the king of the south, that's Judah, and said, hey, there's this guy, and he's, you know, he's, not, he's, he's bailed on this agreement, and I'm going to go get the land back. Will you fight with me? He's like, sure, sure, sounds great. I'll tell you what, you can have my tanks, you can have my soldiers. Let's just go for it. Sure, whatever. So he says, well, which way shall we go up? And he answers, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Now, can I just warn you? When you have, one of the problems with picking the wrong friends is that you wind up fighting their battles with them. When you find someone that's godly, the battles you're going to fight with them are going to be your battles too. When you find somebody that's a bad influence, you're going to wind up fighting their battles. And with that, you'll make enemies you would never have had otherwise. Some of those enemies are people that should be your friends. Not necessarily in this case. Now, looking, can you remember where Edom is? Southeast of the Dead Sea. Can you find, by the way, Israel and Judah on there, just so you can look on your map? I just want you to get a visual. So if you're in Samaria, you have to go through Judah around the Dead Sea and then scoop up on the east side to pick up Edom. Do you get that? Now, why would you do that? Well, that's quite simple. Because if you pick up Edom, you've got a bigger army. So at this point, you're scooping up a whole lot more people to fight. But guess who you haven't actually tried to bring into the battle with you? The Lord. He hasn't been at any point mentioned in any of this so far. And you know how that is. Now look at. let's just be honest. Edom, well they certainly wouldn't inquire of the Lord because they have their own, Kos. Then we have Israel, well they certainly wouldn't inquire of the Lord. They were busy asking a cow, a golden one. That's broken, by the way, at this point. So then all that's left is Yoshaphat. But let me ask you, if you're in this company, wouldn't it be awkward? Sorry, you guys. Have you ever been in a, in a situation where you just feel awkward for being a Christian? You're like, I mean, you're at a table with a group of people and you just want to thank the Lord for your food. Now, I'm American. We're all aware of that. Although you can go to with me. Uh, we've just got a, a message today that said the government has received our applications for citizenship. Love your prayers for that. Praise the Lord. Uh, in a week, yeah, praise the Lord, in a week and a half, Suzanne's heading up to Scotland so that Shantae can hand in hers. Woo, uh, woo! All right, let's get there. But, but it's like, I, but I pull the American card when it's beneficial. And it's like, there's, you know, I'm at a table, and I'm with a group of people, and they don't know the Lord. I'm like, hey, you guys, look at you know who I am? I'm going to thank the Lord for my food. Do you mind if I thank him for yours, too? Let's face it, there are people who would rather sh- just cut off their face than have that kind of conversation, you know, you know, with a fork. But for me, it's like, you know, I just, if it's going to be awkward for me to be a Christian, what do I have to lose? When in the world did this world become the, the enemies? Let's just be honest. This world belongs to the Lord, because it tells us all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He still owns the title deed to it. No matter who has squatted on the property and tried to claim it as their own, it still belongs to the Lord. There's the beauty in it. Now, the world's under the sway of the wicked one. He's certainly been influential. But the property belongs to God. Now, in this situation, it would have been weird. Let's just be honest. You know, you guys. But let's face it, you know what God does when you start compromising like that? He lets it get worse and worse and worse until you think you're going to go nuts unless you actually do something to take a stand. Do you know what I'm saying? You're like, yeah, okay, I'm going to back off, I'm going to back off, I'm going to back off. And then everybody's smoking pot in front of you and you're like, oh, okay, I'm a Christian, man. I mean, somewhere down the line. And by that point, you blurt it out in the most awkward fashion because you've been fighting it for so long at this point. And and the reason I say that is that's what he's going to do here. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Here's our problem, verse 9. And they marched on a roundabout route seven days. Now, I love the fact I think of roundabouts now, and it's, of course, a different thing, right? I mean, I had got my driver's license. And that's those things where if there's like 15 lanes, every one of them has a law. And it's like, imagine just going around that for seven days, right? And there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed him. And the king of Israel, notice, said, alas, which I've never heard a king say, but just for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Please don't miss this. First of all, understand two of those kings are not worshiping this God here that they're talking about. One's worshipping a cow, one's worshipping God's replacement, if you will, this guy that calls himself Godless, if you will, uh, in Edom. And God is now, in his loving kindness, let their gods fail. God will always defeat the things you lean on that should be God but aren't. And one of the ways he actually defeats them, and here's the beauty in it, is just to let them not perform because they can't. There was a guy that we knew once, and he was an amazing talker. He was a really good, I mean, we're talking about tough, this is Chicago, we talk tough, right? What are you looking at? You really want me to tell you what I'm looking at? Yeah, and my answer is never stop the fight. Anyways, uh, and this guy never fought a day in his life. It was one of those things, but he was big enough and scary enough where he just, you know, he'd push people. What are you looking at, that kind of thing? And I wasn't having a good day, and he wasn't making it any better. And I'm like, and it would be like, meet me after school. And then you just wait for people to come. And I'm like, why wait for after school? Let's just go right now, buddy. And, and the whole point of it, no, forgive me. This isn't like, check, man, I'm cool, because it really isn't that. And I'm not proud of these moments. But I relate to it in this. He was completely incapable of performing. But he sure set himself up as He could. And there are times in your life where God will let your gods fail you. You know, the most amazing thing is how even after they fail us, we still go back to them. We go to the bottle. And this is amazing as we serve uh, addicts. They've had a bad day, so they should go get drunk. They've had a really good day. They should go get drunk. Huh? I don't get it. So are you punishing the day or are you rewarding the day with it? Isn't it amazing? It's like the same hammer that hits you in the head for one thing actually works for the other too hey, happy anniversary, and you what, you hit your wife in the head? I mean, the reason I say that is, is that, in this situation, God has allowed them to thirst for seven days. And the one person they're calling out to is him. And he's like, and here's, I remind you, but is supposed to bring rain. They have a statue of him, by the way, if you will, even in the British Museum. And he's like, got a, he's like throwing a thunderbolt that's got like vegetation on the end of it because he's supposed to like throw fire, you know, lightning and bring rain and the whole bit. Well, he certainly isn't doing anything here. But the most amazing part to me is verse 10. Because the king of Israel, the guy who, by the way, is in rebellion of this living God, it's funny, those who have turned their backs on God will seek anything else for safety, for guidance, for clarity, for truth, for prosperity, but they reserve one thing for our God, blame. Isn't it just amazing? Amazing. You know, it's like, hey, you know what? That guy over there, I'm going to he's the one who's going to tell the truth. You're God's dumb. But I'm going to tell this guy. This guy is for truth. But he's going to let you down in any of, anything, including his truth. Oh, and then there's this. And there's, oh, and you know, I lean on this. And I trust and I identify with this. And this is who I am. And all, and this is the banner I wave and the flag I'm planting and all of that stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, everything else is letting me down. And you know why it's letting me down? Because of your God that I don't believe in. Wow, you know what's so funny? If you didn't believe in him, why are you so angry at him? You know, I don't believe in Santa. But I'm not angry at him. It just doesn't make sense to be angry at something that doesn't exist. And that's the king of Israel. This is a Jewish man. who looks and he's like, well, I'm not going to serve him. But you know what? He's led us out here to die. And I'm like, well, the last time that somebody else was wandering around in a wilderness, they said the same thing. Which tells me this is the old man once again cropping up. Jehoshaphat now has to stand up. How, can I just ask, and again, I'm, the, everything I'm telling you, I have to hear too, right? How bad does it have to get before you stand up for your God? Not because God needs you to defend Him, because you need you to defend Him. For your own dignity and honor. Because how do you say you love someone and then let somebody just walk all over? You start dissing my wife sooner or later. You're going to expect, should be quick, by the way, should expect me to say something. How much more the one that gave his whole life for me to set me free and to wash me clean and to make me his? So this got to the point where Jehoshaphat now needs to step up. And Jehoshaphat says in verse 10, is there no prophet of the Lord here? No, no, so he has to qualify because if he just says prophet, they'd be like, oh, we've got a whole bunch of prophets. Yeah, I don't want those. I don't want those bozos. I want the real thing. Is there a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? I remind you, he's in Edom right now. They're in Edom, wandering around. That's the desert, by the way. So they're wandering around in the desert. And you're probably aware of it. In the Middle East, water is life. And there's no life. For seven days, you have had nothing to drink. Have you ever fasted from water for more than a day? It's it's an acting trick that they do where you fast. They call it a dry fast. If you fast for three days, you become so gaunt. They did it with Hugh Jackman in Les Mis. Remember that first scene, and I, I think I saw it once because I'm married, but uh, where he like looked like a beggar. He looked really gaunt, and you're like, how did he do all of that? It's simple. You do f- a dry fast for three days, and your whole everything sinks on you. That's three days. Go seven. Now, you do that seven, and you realize everybody's tired, everybody's hot, everybody smells really bad, and everyone's rather grumpy. People are starting at this point. Let's just face it, they're dehydrating. Things are getting ugly. And Yoshef goes, you know, isn't there someone we can talk to about the, that, that actually speaks for the living God, the real God? Because clearly yours ain't working. So the servants of the king of Israel. Interesting, isn't that even in the household of the king, there are people who know. They answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elisha. By the way, he had done that for six years. And Jehoshaphat said, well, the word of the Lord is with him. It seems like he knows him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now, where are they at at this moment? Where are these kings at? They're in the desert of Edom. Can you find that on your map again? Do you remember the last place that Elisha was? Elishama was in Samaria, which I remind you is now like 80 something miles away. There's two options here. One is that they went to go find a guy 80 miles away, and by the time they came back, everybody died. Or, strangely enough, Elisha has actually somehow placed himself nearby. Do you see the mercy of God in that? If they had actually had to go all the way to Samaria to get him, no one's going to make it. Now look at the condition of Elisha. Verse 13, then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What am I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother, who I remind you is Ahab and Jezebel. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. He's totally from the south. You can hear it, can't you? That's the way I hear it. And Elisha says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the, regard the presence of Yehoshaphat, king of Judah, I wouldn't even look at you nor see you. I wouldn't give you the time of day, man. Look at If it wasn't for the fact that this guy is here, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. I get this. Now, look at the state that Elisha is in. He walks over and you know what he sees? He sees, first of all, a guy that has no interest in God. That's the king of Edom. By the way, that ultimately graduate to the term Idumean. Do you know who the last Idumean is in Scripture? The Herod family. The like Greek Herod, the Idumean. That was the guy, I remind you, who murdered all of those babies in Bethlehem because he really didn't want Jesus on the planet. You remember that? And then his whole family, and none of them were any better. Now, all of that to say, just give me an idea. So there's that guy, I remind you. They're serving their cost God, right? They're, they're like way into their thing. So there, there's, there's that guy, and he is, in essence, a total unbeliever. You with me so far? Then you've got the king of Israel, and he's a total rebellious guy. He's Jewish. He should be serving the living God, but he's in total rebellion. And if you looked at these two guys, you've got a guy who has no interest in believing in the living God, and then you've got a guy who's no interest in following the living God or obeying him. That would bother you enough. But then you look at the third guy, and you're like, what? What are you doing with these two? This is the worst. This is worse than the Three Stooges. Because I look at you and you are a godly guy. What the heck is going on? What's wrong with you? Think about what must be going on inside Elisha at this moment. The indignation. The injustice. The anger. And they're like, could you prophesy for us? At that moment... Wouldn't If you were Elisha, you were like, I'll tell you how I'm going to start this prophecy. I'm going to fry you and you. I'm going to make it slow so you have an opportunity to repent. I mean, think about... Well, you can see why God saved me. Think about where you would be at that moment and how you would feel justified in that indignation. Let's be honest. You'd be like, what's wrong with you, man? I'll tell you what. You bail from these jerks and we'll take care of you. Let them die. But he can't do that because God loves all of them. And he has no interest in in that any of the wicked should die without him, but that all would turn and repent. And he looks at this, but here's the problem. He is at this moment really not predisposed to being the prophet he should be. You ever have those moments? Well, you know, God's got a great calling on your life, but at this particular moment, You are way not ready to do what God's called you to. And usually it happens because of one of two reasons. It happens because of the circumstances around you are unjust or weird or ungodly. Or the circumstances inside you feel validated not to be that way. So you know what he does? And here's the first of two amazing things that this is why I love this chapter so much. He says the strangest thing, bring me a musician. Now, and as it happened, as the musician played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now, it's important to recognize, Elisha could not just say, God's hand, come upon me now. He could, and please hear me in this, you cannot force God's hand. But you could put yourself in a place where you're not willing or predisposed to not having God's hand be put upon you, because God really doesn't want to empower you to be super jerk. Let's just be honest. So Elisha, and I mean, we can look at this and we can go so many places with it, and we could talk about, well, you know, God, by the way, He likes He likes music. That's clear. Do you know that He created the whole world? It says in Job, if we were to believe Job 38, 7. And I do. It says, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God loves to work with music in the background. He created everything with music behind him. We know that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul when. The prophets came down playing musical instruments. And then God removed his Holy Spirit from him, and then an evil spirit that tormented him. But when David would come and play the harp, he would be soothed. Interesting for what it's worth, and most of you are familiar, that in Ezekiel 28, God tells us, Some would say that the devil was the first worship leader. We don't have that. He actually looks more like a musical instrument than he actually does the leader. But again, it tells us that the workmanship of timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day that you were created, however that works. I do find it interesting, though, that there are times in life where if you really want the hand of the Lord to come upon you and you really want God's power, the noise of the outside world around us really needs to be quieted. And all of the emotions that wage war on my peace have to be put at ease because I need to get my focus on the Lord and I need to get all that stuff off of me. Not because that, so I could say God's hand come upon me because that's not the way it's even written here. The way it's written is that the result of this musician playing, ultimately God put his hand upon him. let 's be honest, I could be distracted by their weird union, this unbeliever, this rebellious, and this faithful guy. I could be pressured by the surroundings around me and the desire the requirement to perform under these circumstances. You know how that works, but I do find interesting before some of the most wor- some of the worst moments in life, God really wants to still your heart. And he wants to use his music to do so. And what's interesting, throughout Scripture, until we get to heaven, it seems that Scripture, I'm sorry, that the song is actually used to soothe the soul, not ignite it. The Word, God's Holy Spirit, are to ignite it. But the the music was, in essence, to to cool the soul, to be still, and to wait and to listen for his voice. I think that's interesting, because do you realize the last thing Jesus did before he actually left for the garden to be arrested was sing a hymn? And if it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. So, And the reason they say that is, what about your situation right now? What about mine? On your playlist, do you have at least one playlist that's just Jesus that you know isn't going to just, I mean, I have some playlists, they're just going to hype me up. I know. When I used to go and play, you know, whatever sport it was, I had, you know, the up playlist. When I would go work out, I had the up playlist. I mean, let's face it, you can't be like, the whole rugged cross. You know, while you're like lifting, you're like, you know. I get that. But when the world has become a tempest and you were tossed and you're just trying not to fall out of the boat, And people are acting crazy around you. People you love. And people you don't love are acting even crazier. And there are circumstances that you know, the moment you think of them, your heart is going to be anything but joyful and free to dance. And some of the people you would even turn to for encouragement, there's some of the people that, let's just be honest, the dynamic of the moment, it's just not right for that to happen. and you're like wow well, my soul is overwhelmed you're overwhelmed you know what the devil says in a moment like that sedate let's use our sedatives let's be honest if we can shut that mind off and empty it we'll be okay so you drink you do your drugs And you meditate so that you can have nothing in you, which is opposite of scriptural meditation of the Bible. And God says, what if instead you let me step into this situation on a level beyond just your intellect? And let's face it, music does that, man. Somehow in all of that, it seems to get at your heart before your brain has a chance to think there's the danger of picking the wrong friends musically. Do you have one playlist when your heart is overwhelmed, this is the soul-soothing playlist. The one I just know that I don't want to listen to right now because I want to be a jerk. You ever have those moments where like, I feel like I'm nasty? I'm basically, I'm like a human fart right now, and I have no interest in changing. And God says, you need to listen to this, and let's just get things right. And you listen to two or three songs. There's certain songs. There's a song by Shekinah Glory called Yes. It's like 28,000 minutes long. Maybe it's like 11. And there's like five sentences in the whole song. And the song is like, hey, look, will your heart still say yes, even after all of this? Will your soul say yes to the Lord? And the whole point of it is, if he's really the Lord, will you say yes to him? Is there a yes in your spirit? And the first five minutes of it, usually it's one of those, those are one of my, it's almost my, it can be my playlist because it's long enough. But it's, you know, it's like I listen in the beginning. I'm like, yeah, of course. No, 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 But like halfway through this thing, somewhere down the line, and I realize why, at least in my life, why she had to go on it for so long, because for the first five minutes, I'm intellectually agreeing, but my heart is still being the human fart. And so somewhere in all of that, finally, it's like by the end of it, I'm like, oh, God, you're so right. What's wrong with me? God, please put that yes back in my spirit. But it took sometimes 10 minutes for me to get there. Do you have a playlist like that where you can say, bring me a musician? Now, you know, there are people who can try to, and we can pull in all kinds of, it all depends on where you come from, we can pull in all kinds of things that are extra biblical, but what we have here is that simply from our text is Elisha is in a place where he's not predisposed to doing prophety type things at this particular moment. He is, he is in a bad way emotionally, and he's like, that needs to change. Will you bring me a musician? And he does... And the whole, in the the spirit of the Lord, the hand of the Lord comes upon him. Are you with me on this? Can I just say, if you don't, please, for your sake, get one. If you want suggestions, I'm more than happy to give you a whole bunch of suggestions. And it's like, and I've, I've I a you know. And Daniel, I'm sure he can too. Bruno, I'm sure he can too. It's like, and my guess is Jaden probably can too. It's like, we're pretty eclectic in a lot of ways that I could throw in you can be like, hey, 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 oh, that one's good. I mean, you you know, it's kind of, and the whole reason I'm saying that is it is amazing what difference it is when you actually allow the musical friends in your life to be the right ones. Let's bring this around. So now the Holy Spirit has come upon him. The hand of the Lord has come upon Elisha and he has this, counsel to give to a faithful king, a rebellious king, and an unbelieving king. Thus says the Lord, make the valley full of ditches. Now, I want to remind you, we're in a place where there's no life. It's dry. We are dying. You ever been there spiritually? you like, put your hands to things and you're just like, I'm just going to die here. And this is the, I mean, I'm worn out. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. And he says, make the valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, you shall not see rain, yet the valley will be filled with water so that you, your cattle, your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. And now, you're, those other little puny fake gods, they're, this, this is way too big for them. But for me, the real God, this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Who will also deliver the Moabites in your hand. Stop. Listen, he did actually let me say this. He says you shall also attack every fortified city, every choice city, cut down every good tree, stop up every spring of water, ruin every good piece of land with stones. No. I need life. I am dry, I am thirsty, I am worn out. It's the very same thing the psalmist says when he says, in a dry and thirsty land, my soul craves for you. And he's not just going, you know, it would be really cool if you came and helped me. He's like, I am desperate for you, God. I am desperate. And unless you step into this soon, I am done. There's no way I'm going to make it through this. been there? God goes, I know that you're tired, but I need you to dig deep. And I want you to start digging But you can't bring the water, but you can dig the holes. But I want you to know this. They're in Edom. They're in enemy territory, in a sense. Well, lightly enemy territory. Jordan today. And he says, You need to know that I'm not going to export this rain. It's not going to come from wind, and it's not going to come from rain. So it's not going to come from blowing in from the Mediterranean, and it's not going to fall from the sky. So, what's the only direction left? It has to rise up. This life has the rise up for you to get there. And by the way, when that happens, you're not the only one who's going to be affected by it. Anything that's associated with you is going to be affected. In a moment like this, we can get so consumed with ourselves that we could argue with God when he says, dig, you just start digging, dig in his word, dig into a fellowship, dig into prayer. But start with this predispose me to this, please, God, because I'm dry and I'm thirsty and I'm tired. It goes, I need you to keep digging. I know you're tired. Keep digging. But you're not going to find water there. All you're really doing in digging is giving me a place to fill it with. Water's not the problem, boys. By the way, neither is victory. But either one of these things, life and victory you're going to need to reconcile this tonight. They both only come from one place. And neither one's a big deal for me. But when I give you victory, don't become friends with the places I've given you victory with. If I've given you victory over them, I remind you, Moab now is completely dedicated to Khmash. We'll see at the end of this what happens. But understand, in this, if I give you victory over drugs, Don't try a little bit here and there to become friends with it again. If I've given you victory over porn, don't start playing with porn-ish things. When I give you victory, all the fruit of that area, I want it all down to. All the buildings that have been created in that area, I want them down to. I don't want anything to look like this in your life. Verse 20, let's see how it closes up. So it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom. Where are they at? Edom. Where did the water come from? Edom. Did you get that right? And the land was filled with water. By the way, does anyone know what Edom means? Edom means? Red. Hmm. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms, the older and older, were gathered and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning and the sun shining was shining on the water. And the wallbites saw the water on the other side as red as blood, fitting for a place called Edom. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and they have killed one another. I mean, I remind you, there's three kingdoms there. And they're like, oh, interesting, like a trinity. But I don't want to draw that comparison too much because so these guys are... Hosers. But they're like, oh it's blood. Hey, you know what happened? These kingdoms they can't even get along with each other. They killed each other. There is death in that camp. Now therefore, Moab to the spoil. Now let me ask you, if you thought everybody was dead in the camp, and there you are with your sword in one hand and a shield with the other, and you're gonna go collect spoil, what do you do first? I'd drop my sword and my shield. You know why? Because I need those hands to get stuff. I don't need my armory. I need a backpack. Just be honest. So you know what happened when they got there? They came to the camp of Israel. Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed their cities, each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. They stopped up all the springs of water, cut down the good trees, but they left the stones of Kaharaset. By the way, that's a fortress. It literally means fortress of earth and vessels. The same thing we're called, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 4. Anyway, it's a hilltop 10 miles from the Dead Sea. In other words, they, got, they just took everything, and then they got to this one place, and they're like, this was kind of hard. You know what they did? They didn't go, oh, it's hard. Forget it. They actually brought in other guys. They brought in experts. They brought in slingers, and the slingers surrounded it, attacked it. Guess what? We got that land, too. Then, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but he couldn't do it. So guess what? Just because you're having victory doesn't mean the king's not going to try a futile but desperate attempt to break through the ranks. So you know what he winds up doing? He took his eldest son, who could have reigned in his place, offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall, and there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. Don't miss this, because the end of this this is so awesome. Here's the way this ends. You have an enemy. And you have an enemy who, by the way, you're probably aware of. The enemy is not interested in you politely losing. The enemy wants you dead. Dead. The enemy isn't going to be like, oh, let's just agree and just I'll I'll say I win. And that's cool, right? No, this is an enemy who wants you dead. And as he's an enemy that wants you dead, you're in the middle of this battle. And for the first moment, you're like, you know what I really need to do? I need to seek the Lord on this. But I'm not even in the right place to hear the Lord. If the Lord were to tell me something, I'm not even in the right place for it. So Lord, first of all, predispose me to hear what you need to tell me and put me in the right place. So he does. And then in, in this case, it's the prophet himself. And he says, this is what I need you to do. I need you. Your job's to dig. You just keep digging. My job will be t- to take care of the rest. So I dig. And as I dig the holes in the earth, I don't see anything, but I'm going to trust him. In faith, I'm just going to keep doing what he's called me. I am going to put my hands to the work. I may see no fruit from it at this moment, and I am tired, and I'm exhausted, and I'm thirsty, but I am going to keep digging because he told me to, because in faith, I trust that he's going to do something with it. And what he's going to do is he's going to bring life. But there needs to be places for God to fill that water, fill to fill. And so you dig in, and you invest. And you work it, even if you're tired. But you know what happened? It was the time of the sacrifice. It was the time when sacrifice is offered. That God gave us the life. But here's the most amazing part. The enemy who wants you dead, what is life to us, you know what he sees when he looks? He sees the blood. I see the life. He sees the blood. And I look and it's like he wants to throw guilt at me. He sees the blood. He wants to mock my past. He sees the blood. He wants to try to say I'll never amount to anything. He sees the blood when he looks because my God has filled these holes. And all I've done is set my hand to do something anyone can do that has a back and a couple of arms and a shovel. And you know what happens as a result of that? In the midst of that, God disarmed the enemy to run into the battle. Do you realize that? They drop everything because what they think is they're just going to get my stuff, and they start running. I'm fully armed. And they're not. They are no match. As the scripture says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors. Now look at if you don't if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus, what do you have? Your good works. The enemy looks and he says, yeah, you got that and you tried to do this with it. That's all you got. In my life, the enemy sees the blood because it was the blood of Jesus that has washed me clean from all of my guilt and shame and sin. Are you with me so far? Because we get to the last thing. The last thing is odd here because this Moabite king knows that the God he serves, Hamash, that the way he keeps him happy he does it through the sacrifice of his first son. But did you notice the result? Hear me on this. When the king sacrifices his son, it brings shame upon their enemy. Do you realize? When the enemy looks, he sees blood where Christ gave me life. But when my father gave his son to set me free, it fully just brought shame to the enemy. It disqualified him. It disarmed him. We read that Jesus has disarmed principalities, powers, mights, and dominions. He's above all of those things, anything that is named or could be named. He's above every one of those seated above all of those things. They are under his feet. Ephesians 2 has told me that. Or At the end of Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2 tells me I'm seated in Christ. As long as I'm in Christ, I'm above those things too. How cool is that? And it tells us that he would, through his death, Deliver us from him who had the power of death. Destroying the enemy is what he tells us. Who we our whole life were set in bondage by the fear of that death. You hear me on this. This is how it ends. It started with a stupid allegiance. People that you should never have locked arms with. Because when you locked arms, you had to fight their battle. But now you're in a battle, and somehow in all that, the enemy wants you dead. And as the enemy wants you dead, we go, oh, I've got an enemy who wants me dead. And God says, I'll take care of that. But you, this is what I want you to do. Notice he doesn't say, sharpen your swords. Notice he doesn't say, okay, put yourself in battle formation. Because to be honest, you're not in a position to fight. What you need is life. My job is to fight for you. Battle belongs to me. I need you just to dig. To dig deep. That's what we're doing here, aren't we? We're digging into his word and going, God, give us life. And as he does, the enemy looks and he's like, oh, I think I won. And he only winds up setting himself up for being completely destroyed in the situation. Now as we go to prayer, let me ask you, where are you at in the battle? Have you dropped your shovel? He said, I'm so tired of digging. I'm digging now. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. And I'm not seeing any water. He goes, wait for the time of the sacrifice. When the sacrifice happens, you'll see it. But it's his job to bring it up and it has to rise up from the earth. That's where life comes from, is the resurrection. As we pray, can I pray again, God, grant us playlists that put our mind completely... And let's face it, just because it's called Christian music doesn't mean it's going to focus your mind on Christ. Am I talking truth here? I've heard songs and I'm like, how in the world is this called a Christian song? Then I realized, if you're going to be honest, the best that the world has to say is nothing. The worst that it has to say is an awful lot. The best that Christian music has to say is everything good. The worst that quote-unquote Christian music says is nothing. So the best... Worldly music and the worst Christian music, there's no difference in regards to that, except you know, the quality, but we'll talk about that some other time. God is not intended for us to be carriers of nothingness. And I just want you to be ready for the victory. And I can tell you, as we're doing this, we're having these Bible studies and we're seeking to get Christ out to people in the end of it all. And I'm like, Lord, where do we go that's most fruitful? And he goes, just keep digging ditches and watch what I do. You ever dig a ditch? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And you know what? You know it for days. One ditch and your body will remind you for a week. Now, the good news is it's mostly sand. And if there's no water, it's a little lighter. But if you ever trying to dig through sand, you ever been on a beach and try to dig on, what happens when you take that first shovel full and pull it out? The sand kindly fills that spot for you. Have you noticed that? It is a lot of work to dig a ditch. Once we actually talked about the hill, I mean, we used to have this thing where we had this like homeschool group back in the Central Coast, and I had this group of kids, and I did this Bible lesson with them each week, and we walked through the entire Old Testament. It was really fun. And we talked about Moses going up on the hill to receive the Ten Commandments, and they actually got these cool, because I'm just weird like that, but they got these cool little things that were like, uh, they were, Planks of of wood that were covered in wax that they got to carve the Hebrew letters for the Ten Commandments in it. It was really cool. I mean, these kids were like eight, and uh, they did it. But like, what I was gonna do was like, oh, I want to dig. Let's. I live right by a beach. Let's create Mount Sinai, right? (laughs) Come on, that's ambitious, right? So I'm just going to keep digging, and we're going like, to create a mountain. Do you know, it's like I was there for three hours, and I like to think I'm not the slowest guy, and after three hours, we didn't get a mountain that would cover over. I mean, it was like, yeah, this is really not an impressive mountain. There's no smoke, fire, and shaking happening here, except for me. Smoke's coming off of me everywhere. Now, the point is is that it's like it is hard work, but you do it in faith because you know that God's... the He's the one that's got to bring the life in this. Now, as we go to prayer, does the enemy see blood when he looks at you? Does he see all of your shame washed away so that he has to kind of make it up and try to bring back things that aren't on the list anymore? Or are you really just trying to stamp on top of that something else that says, well, he did a couple of good things too tonight, the Lord wants to bring us to a place of absolute victory. And that's what I want to pray. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much that when you offered your son, you brought total indignation against the enemy. I want to thank you, Lord, that even when the victory was happening, the enemy still tried to break through to see if there was a hole in the ranks to check if the commitment was strong enough to continue to follow to the end of the victory. And maybe that was something they learned in the ditches was when they were digging holes, they had to learn that you can't just stop in the middle of it. You didn't ask for a rut, you asked for a ditch. Very different thing. It's much deeper. And to learn how have that follow through, to keep going and to keep going and to keep going. And there are times where I think we'd have so much more victory if we'd keep going. We get to the battle, we feel, we kind of get over the top of a hill somewhere and we feel like we've gotten to it. But then the enemy tries again and we just kind of fall backwards and just let him run over us when we were already winning. We were already in victory. And you're like, I don't want you to take any of this with you. Take down the trees. Take down the fortresses. This is defeated territory from this point forward. And I pray I could learn from that tonight. Jesus, I pray tonight that I could recognize that the gift you give at the cross disarmed the enemy shamed the enemy and covered all of the handwriting of requirements with your blood to wash it completely clean. You blotted out my sins. I want to thank you that at your resurrection there is a new life raising from the earth. One that I can live in and stand in and if it was just a little thing not only do you give new life but that new life comes tandem with victory. That's what you tell us here. So, Lord, if that be the case, forgive us for those times where we are overwhelmed and we, in our overwhelmed state, try to lean on stupid things that, that aren't gods at all, that, that don't have the power to actually do the one thing that only you can do. Put clarity and peace and comfort into the situation. So, Lord, whatever that thing is that we could call in that would put our heart and our mind back in the right place, let that always be readily available. Forgive us for those ways that we've befriended things that have declared war against you, musically, or even with just people. Is if somehow we can draw from them something that we think is benefiting us, but what they're doing is influencing us to more silence and cowardice and to a very to convoluted, weak, feeble Christianity that really looks nothing like you. So tonight I pray for a freshness to come upon us. One that says, Jesus, yes. Yes, Jesus, and all you are. So tonight we just want to say yes. Fill us with that spirit. But first, Lord, before you put your hand upon us, predispose us to that place, Lord, where, where all of that indignation, all of that injustice, all of that anger, all of that rebellion, all of the disbelief that would cause us to wander. Drive it all out so that we be a completely open vessel for your hand to come upon us and your spirit to fill us. And with that, we pray for the salvation of the city. Save London and use us. May we be predisposed. When the bugle is blown, we're already on the line in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.